never tired of winning. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. In the midst of dark times, this was a beautiful week for justice and democracy in the case of Denson versus Donald J. Trump for president. The NDA fight that I started almost six years ago without a lawyer ended in a sweeping victory with my now brilliant legal team and I avoiding hundreds of illegal NDAs that Donald Trump used to gag and punish his critics and hide the truth from the American people. There are no more excuses for silence. Speak now or forever hold your peace. The unholy alliances that threaten peace and democracy around the world are reveling in the chaos and division Donald Trump has caused in this country. Because of the Republican Party's the Republican Party's refusal to speak themselves, they have descended into utter chaos under his domination, unable to elect a speaker and barely able to fund our own government, let alone our international allies under siege. And MAGA hacks like Josh Hawley are trying to pit the needs of Ukraine and Israel against each other, literally doing the bidding of Putin and his ally Iran, who is backing Hamas. Divide and conquer. It's the strategy of authoritarians, of terrorists, and of far too many in our own government who seek nothing but power. On this topic, I, I just wanna take a minute here to acknowledge the horrors occurring in the Middle East. My heart is absolutely with the Israelis who are enduring unthinkable loss and barbarism. And my heart is also with the suffering and devastated people of Gaza and Palestine who want no part of Hamas. While defeating genocidal terrorism, we must also vigorously defend human rights. I have been grateful to see Biden's leadership on both of these fronts. And just look at his leadership in contrast with Donald Trump, who is now desperately trying to cover for his obscene comments this week, praising terrorists as smart and undermining Israel. Never forget that when Trump was president, our allies were on edge and our enemies were celebrating as he literally handed over Israeli secrets to the Russians in the Oval Office and swapped love letters with Kim Jong-un. As I say almost every week, it's obscene that we're still, still dealing with this man in American politics, but I think we can blame it on an epidemic of silence. Like I said, speak now or forever hold your peace. I'm joined today by someone who is definitely speaking and has a lot to say about these forces that would divide us. And I have some very special and important announcements at the end of this show, so please stick around. It's gonna be a packed hour and we're also gonna cover some more bombshell news that you may have missed. Please join me in welcome, welcoming artist, journalist, former embed for the Oath Keepers and January 6th committee witness, Jason Van Tatenhove. Jason, welcome to Lights On. Hi, Jessica, thanks for having me on. It's really, really great to meet you. And what a week um, to have you here. We've had a lot of unfolding news in Colorado, which is where you're from. Yeah. Um, just before we jumped on this podcast, Jason and I were, were discussing the developments in the 14th Amendment case. Um, Jason hosts a podcast on his platform, Colorado Switchblade. And we've both actually interviewed Donald Sherman of Crew. Um, Crew, of course, has brought that very significant uh, case in Colorado, and Trump suffered another devastating loss this week in that case where a judge dismissed his motion or, or ruled against him in his attempt to get that lawsuit tossed out with anti-slap laws. She said that those uh, protections <laughs> very specifically did not apply to him. He does not have a free speech defense in this case, and now that uh, trial Jason is scheduled to move forward in the end of October. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. Um, you know, I know that our our state leadership is is looking at what the courts are going to be doing um, as kind of a, a baseline to go from. But I mean, it's a start and it's starting here in Colorado. You know, Colorado has been at the forefront of a lot of um, cultural, social change. So uh, I'm proud to call it my home. But, you know, I, I talked with some of the um, leadership of the state and, and you know, they're they're kind of gonna wait and see where this goes so it's it's a step in the right direction and that's really what we need to do at this point is is keep taking steps in the right direction for you know the cause of of um you know justice and and <laughs> actual law 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've you've really devoted a lot of your efforts. Um, you know, people, we had this discussion because I talked to Jason. I said, Jason, do you know my story? And he's like, oh, yeah, you're the NDA gal. And then he, he said to me, I'm always thought of as the Oath Keepers guy, but you have such a rich background beyond the Oath Keepers. But because of this very personal experience that you had, literally you know, working day to day with Stuart Rhodes. At one point, he lived in your basement. I mean, you know this guy extremely well, and you've now devoted, you know, very significant efforts into exposing what you saw and trying to help, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is your motive to help other people who are kind of trapped in this conspiratorial world to get out. Yeah, you know, the the whole adventure kind of started for me as... I, I was reading just entirely too much Hunter S. Thompson um, back during, and, and keep in mind, um, you know, I get asked a lot, well, were you at the Capitol? You know, did you do this, that, and the other? But really, my time with the Oath Keepers was, was seven, eight years ago, um, and kind of before they they took their hard right turn. Um, you know, the seeds were there from the beginning, but, you know, when Bundy Ranch happened, I thought it was a very historical moment. And I'm just kind of wired that when something like that happens, I want to jump in my car and get there and, and interface with the people that are, are there, you know, boots on the ground and see what's really going on. And, you know, I'd been reading, I'd just gotten done working through Hunter S. Thompson's on the bus going through and read his Hell's Angels, which was kind of his, uh, narrative participatory journalistic um uh coverage of the hell's angels back in the the late 60s and um you know so i thought this was kind of and that's how i remember to, i tell my wife this could be my chance to to kind of write my breakout uh book and um so i, I made some calls and uh within a couple of days um i was set up to be embedded with stuart rhodes as he drove down to bundy ranch from kalispell montana um, I really didn't know who he was. The first time I met him was uh, just before I, I got in the car with him to, to go travel down to an armed standoff with federal law enforcement agents. Um, you know, but I, I think it's also important. So much of America right now is wrapped up in conspiracy theory. You know, it's just we are a nation of conspiracy theory junkies um, and addicts and, and myself included, you know, and it's, it's, it's easy to jump down those rabbit holes. And I can tell you from my own experience you know, you may become radicalized and not even realize that it's happening. And I think I think we are seeing that right now. I think there's a lot of people, especially in the school boards uh, elections that are happening and whatnot. There, there's a lot of people that get caught up in kind of these these echo chambers of social media and and just, you know, the, the, the media that they're consuming. And they don't even realize that that, that temperature is being turned up. And, um, you know, I know for myself, I became uh, radicalized to a certain extent. I was always, uh, you know, I was always fairly skeptical of the government. I think history uh, shows us that we have plenty of reasons to, to at times mistrust the government. Um, but, you know, once they started moving more towards a hard right and race, you know, courting and, and, and coordinating with, with actual racists um, and espousing, you know, anti-Semitic views that like the Holocaust never happened. That's when I said, I, I have to go. And I, I put in my resignation and I had been working quietly kind of behind the scenes because I knew I was going to be labeled as an Oath Keeper guy. And, and that's fair. You know, I, I, I was the, um, you know, during my process, I, I transitioned from being kind of an independent um, journalist to uh, after three standoffs, I was offered a position as their national media director. And I took it, you know, the, the pay was good. And I can tell you, having worked as a legitimate journalist for, you know, a, a newspaper, uh, local newspapers that, that are owned by Alden and such, um, you know, the pay was a lot better. So that was part of it. My wife was very sick um, and raising two daughters still in the house. Um, so that that all played a part of it. And also I was getting inside access. I was getting just unprecedented inside access and a, a kind of fl fly on the wall view of how things were were uh, being navigated and, and, you know, that social engineering that was happening behind the scenes. So, um, you know, I, I stuck with it. I was only with them for about a year and a half. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I went on to become a first responder, um, trying to kind of, you know, I, I felt I had to kind of give back to. You took your life back. Yeah, I had to take my life back and I had yeah. to, to kind of give back to the communities that I was there and living a part of. 
So I, I became a first responder in the EMS world in wildland fire and search and rescue. Um, did that for a few years um, until I had some injuries that didn't allow me to do that anymore. And then I, I went back to writing and, you know, it took me about 10 years, but I finally finished a book that, you know, I had originally set out to do and, and got it published. So, you know, it, it took a lot longer than I thought and I got, I got lost along the way. Um, but I think there are some, some things that I can, you know, some perspectives I can give now, uh, especially with the direction that America is going that can help shed light on, on some of the phenomenon we're seeing happening um, and, and kind of make it a little clearer and hopefully maybe then get some people to step back from that radicalization line, because I think we need exit ramps right now. I think we need to, to really look at as a country, you know, what really got us to where we are now, where we're just so divided and, and the rule of law seems to not matter whatsoever. I mean, it, it seems like we're courting, um, authoritarianism and, and literally at the, the precipice where we may lose our democratic processes within, you know, a few years, if we do not really examine what got us here and, and how we might be able to move forward in a better way. Yeah, and you can really tell when you read your book, I read a good deal of it, The Perils of Extremism. I highly recommend it, How I Left the Oath Keepers and Why We Should Be Concerned About a Future Civil War. I mean, what you really do in this book um, is you put a you put a kind of a human face to a lot of the people that are involved in, in these, um, what you call patriot movements that are sucked in by these conspiracies. One of the quotes that I, I actually wrote down cause I thought it was, you know, kind of just put this in all in a bubble or not in a bubble, but it, it really encapsulated um, the theme. You were talking about this uh, sheriff that you were visiting in Kentucky and trailing around with. And you said, I looked at the back of his head and he, I, he was a part of this Patriot movement. I looked at the back of his head as we made the drive through the woods, hills and hollers of Kentucky. And I realized, I think that a lot of the people who are involved in the Patriot movement are a little lost looking for answers. And when the real world doesn't make much sense, they turn more and more to conspiracies. And it just reminded me of how much Donald Trump prays on people who are lost, how people like Stuart Rhodes prey on these people that are really just looking for answers, looking for a place to belong. Um, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I, I kind of saw a little bit in your writing about you describing Stuart Rhodes as a poser, kind of like the Josh Hawleys of the world, the J.D. Vance's, the ones that are educated and know better, but yet they lead their followers down these rabbit holes for at the end of the day, power and money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the egotism too. Um, you know, and, and that's dangerous because anytime you have a cult of personality and really, I think these are, um, absolutely cults of personality, whether we're talking about Trump and the MAGA movement, um, or Stuart Rhodes, um, or, you know, the CSPOA, the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, you know, they tend to have a very strong figurehead who's very charismatic, um, and connects to a, a certain demographic of people. So really, um, you know, whenever you have that, it, it just historically cults of personality don't work out well because they don't necessarily stick to what they claim to be their moral um, anchors. You know, with, with Stuart, we, I saw it very readily when, you know, at first they were very specific that they wouldn't allow racists in, they wouldn't allow Nazis in, you know, extremists like that. It was really just an anti-government thing. But as the rise of, of the term, the alt-right happened, you'll remember back, you know, there was a time where we, when they started using the term alt-right on the national news, and we really didn't know what it meant. Um, but that all kind of rose up into our, 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 our cultural consciousness. And um, unfortunately, that's where the money for donations, that's where the engagement with, you know, social media or videos or, or rallies, really, there was a lot more numbers there. So we saw this creep from what had been kind of a moral line in the sand to where that got wiped out. And it, it continues to creep further and further to a hard right. Um, you know, I think it's just part of this pendulum swing that we see across our country, you know, every election cycle, but each time it seems to get a little bit more extreme on either side. And I think we need to look more at extreme centrism um, these days and not, you know, who's so far right or who's so far left outdoing each other, because that becomes like Edgar Allan Poe's pit in the pendulum, you know, we're the, the body at the bottom that that 
blade as it swings gets closer and closer. You know, that's that's our, our democratic country and, and, you know, all the progress that we've made. And while America is by no means a, a perfect example of a government, it's the best we got. And, it, you know, we're, we're looking at losing in so much right now as far as civil rights, human rights, um, just so much in general um, that we really need to really take a look at, at that process and, and why we got here. Yeah, we really do. And you mentioned like how they use um, kind of this grievance based, you know, anti-Semitism, white supremacy. They're they're using these these dog whistles and really cattle calls to fund their movements. And, you know, Jason, this was really a wake up call for me when I was on the Trump campaign. Our, our viewers know that I landed in this world because I was uh, I fell prey to Fox News propaganda. I mean, I was just inundated with it nonstop. And I thought these were the faith and freedom people. Um, and that more or less led me to to want to support and work for Donald Trump. But it, as I was reading your book, I was kind of reminded of working on that campaign. And I also came into this as as an artist, you know, like you, I'm an artist. I am not a politician. I am not a political creature. Um, I'm an actor and a journalist myself. And I came to this campaign and I and one of the first things that I witnessed was internally the elitism of the people within the campaign, how they would deride the supporters out there as kind of crazies and loonies. And yet those crazies and loonies are the ones that are their lifeblood. They're the yeah. ones keeping them, you know, going. They're the, they're the only reason that they exist. And yet they act in private like they're better than them. You know, we don't, we know Donald Trump really hates all of his supporters. He, he, he thinks he's better. He's always wanted to be part of, you know, societal elite. Um, and he hates the kind of people, the white working class that support him. He doesn't, he doesn't like these people or respect them. And yet they give their lives for him in the worst cases, literally give their lives. Um, and I want to go ahead and I'm going to. No, I was going to say you're absolutely right. I think yeah. I think I, I term this as social engineering. These people are very good at social engineering and it's a formula. You know, it's a formula that goes back, you know, uh, to to an author named Edward Bernays, who was uh, Freud, who, you know, grandfather of modern psychology, his nephew, yeah. who wrote a book called Propaganda. And it really has become the textbook for, you know, creating this type of messaging where you have the low hanging fruit, which is, you know, anger and outrage and and hopelessness. Um, and you take and, and, you know, touch on those emotional centers um, and kind of poke at them. And then you bring in your messaging or your logo, or your your spin um, and associate with that. I mean, we see that in, in TV commercials all the time where. You know, the commercials don't make sense. They don't have to, um, you know, they're often just gibberish, but, you know, it's something that creates some sort of emotional connection and then they put their branding there with it. They're using these exact same formulas. They're, they're doing the work of social engineering right here and now, and we're the test bed. Um, and I think if we can, you know, let people know these, how they're doing this and, and, you know, that people are being used. Cause I, you know, I look at, I've been covering the school board elections here in Estes Park and, you know, much like across the country, we're seeing a possible hard right takeover to our school boards, um, kind of starting in a whole hyper local level. And, um, I think a lot of these people that are being run and groomed by these, these different organizations that, that obviously have bigger national agendas um they don't know it you know they're being used as pawns much like the people who get involved and go to the rallies and these standoffs for absolutely you know, an organization like the oath keepers or you know the maga rallies and then the lone wolf attacks that happen after trump's doing this stochastic uh terrorism where he's planting these seeds of action and yeah. ideas and they go off and do it you know i don't think they realize that they are being used in that yeah. way like a pawn and i think the more we talk about it the more we shine a light on it, um, the more people might realize, oh, wait a second. So, you know, I, yeah. I think we're, we need to educate people more on critical thinking skills and how to, I, I just did an article on the switchblade talking about the, the, um, the national alert. My, my oldest daughter got really wrapped up in, um, this big national alert conspiracy theories. And, and, you know, for me, that's an indicator that maybe I need to reach out to her and say, Hey, are you doing okay? What's going on with you in your life? You know, is there, there's something that's got you really emotional 
because you know she grew up with me when I was in the the height of my conspiracy addiction, and so now it's my job to try to to bring her back, much like I I had to do with myself. Um, but uh, so in that article, I listed several um, uh, resources that people can look at as far as going and finding independent, um, you know, fact checking, um, just how critical thinking skills work. Um, so I think we need to really look at the resources out there as far as educating. And it's going to be small little movements. It's going to be your daughter. It's going to be your friend, uh, people you have a connection with. That's how we're going to get to a better place. It's not going to be any big sweeping government you know, initiative. It's going to be small acts of kindness and compassion and understanding and just kind of being there for the people in your lives saying, hey, what's going on? Let me let, let's break this down. You know, I, I talk with her about it. Um, with this particular, you know, the, the, the conspiracy was that there was going to be like a 5G um, frequency that was put out that was going to activate, you know, latent nanobot technology and the, the COVID. Uh, yeah, I mean, just crazy stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I really, yeah. I really, I, I emphasize that too. I mean, just on a personal level, each of us has such an enormous opportunity to be this change and awakening that our country desperately needs. I mean, I, I invest and I, t I talk about this, you know, sometimes I, I invest in, in discreetly in certain conversations with, you know, people I meet at the grocery store, the gas station, or just, you know, anywhere. If I see an opening and I see a, I see a willingness, not a hard heartedness, not a, you know, I'm not going to put myself in danger and I don't suggest that, but, um, but I have really broken through with people and it is that reasoning that I use with them. You are being used. Stop being a pawn for these people who don't care about you. And like you said, Jason, the, the branding, it's just the branding is so powerful. Like the school boards, Moms for Liberty. I mean, Liberty, for God's sakes, these people have nothing to do with Liberty. They're literally like reinstituting Nazi policies in our schools in 2023. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this yeah. is not Liberty. But but the um, the language is so compelling to people that they literally get sucked in to these movements. And I think um, really get, you know, just so involved in the community aspect that it sometimes it, it takes it takes something to really jolt them and, and for them to understand, oh, my God, look at what I'm part of. Yeah. And it does take that, you know, and there's no way of knowing for me, it was, you know, I, I, I had been come disenfranchised with things working with the Oath Keepers. Uh, my wife had been really sick, you know, and I I was in a vulnerable state when I, I kind of got sucked into all of this, you know, things weren't going well, all that I, great. If I read your book correctly, you almost, they almost made made you lose your job over well, did, exposing no, your work for, for them. And then, then they had you in this catch 22 where you basically had to work for them to have an income again, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but it was my choice and I don't want to take away from that. You know, I want to own my actions and, and sure. it was know, a choice, my coming back. Not an easy but, one. You know, it was for me, that was the only choice that was viable at the time. You know, yeah. we had housing that was, you know, much more expensive than we could have afforded otherwise um, because it was provided by supporters of the cause. I was making a good paycheck. I didn't have to choose between buying medication for my wife or, you know, Christmas gifts for my kids. Um, you know, we were, we were doing all right, but you know, I walked into, and, and this was right during when Malheur had happened. And you'll remember one of the, the people there, um, he was actually, uh, killed, uh, by the state troopers, Lavoy Finnicum, who was kind of one of the, the leaders at that. And I had gone out there to kind of just see what was going on from an outside view because the Oath Keepers weren't involved with that. Um, but it was, you know, important information to know what was going on. Um, and I was one of the last people to, to ride around in his truck with them the day before and, and some of the last calls urging him to get out of there. Um, luckily enough, and uh, unluckily enough, I had to go back home because there was a mountain lion attack um, at the, the horse barn right across from the cabin my, my wife and daughters were at. So I, I had to go. But the next day he was shot and killed. And I remember going to his funeral and seeing his daughters. Um, and he's someone I had built rapport with. I had interviewed him several times. Um, before I was working for the Oath Keepers and then several times while working for the Oath Keepers. So you build this rapport with people. And, um, you know, so seeing his daughters at that funeral and just breaking down and they looked a lot like I imagined my daughters would look uh, at their age. And I, I remember just thinking, well, this could, ha this, this could have been me. I could have been in that truck, 
And so that kind of set the stage. And then I walked into a conversation a day later, a day or two later at a local grocery store with one of the core members of the, the Oath Keepers. I had met the very first night I'd gone down to Bundy Ranch with Stuart. And um, him and two other associates were at openly talking in a public area. It was like a little deli off the side. It was a small mountain town. And uh, they were talking about how the Holocaust had never happened. And that to me was a line in the sand that shook me awake because I come from a blended family, you know. Um, I that, That's just not part of my makeup, you know, racism and anti-Semitism. So I, I, mean, I, I didn't even pick up the groceries that I'd gone to get for dinner that night. And I, I went straight home, called a family meeting with my wife and daughters and said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we've got to get out of here. Um, and uh, put in my resignation that night. And, and you know, I've been working behind the scenes since then with different journalists and whatnot, always um, off the record up until um, I, w I got my literary agencies like, if you want to sell this book, you got to start putting your name behind some of this stuff. So that's kind of what brought me out. But yeah, that was my moment of, of being shaken back to who I was, you know, because I had changed my appearance. I changed the way I talked. You know, when I went to Bunny Ranch, I had a Ramones t-shirt and, you know, a mohawk and, and my fingernails painted, you know, old school punk rocker. Um, but I remember looking, what, coming back from that interaction at the grocery store and looking at myself, I was wearing real tree camo and, you know, my haircut was real short and um, I just didn't recognize myself anymore. And I didn't realize how much I had changed um, in my day to day, you know, existence. And it really shook me. And I was like, what, what am I doing? I, I can't, yeah. I, I need to get out of here. So that's what I did. That was your moment. Thank God. Yeah. You know, you're talking and I had, I can't help but thinking about the parallels. So many of the parallels between, you know, the fascist extremes of, of the Republican party today and, and the Holocaust and what led up to it and, and the growth of the Nazis and how the Germans did not recognize what was happening to them. Um, and I'm thinking about this in the context of what we're experiencing in Israel and Biden's leadership. I wanted to play a clip um, that is from a speech he gave, a very powerful speech he gave this day about educating his, his granddaughters on the Holocaust. That's why I took my kids Everyone, when they turned 14 years old, one at a time, put them on a plane and took them to Dachau. I wanted them to see that you could not not know what was going on walking through those gates. You could not fail to understand as a country what was going on. And that's a fact. It had a profound impact on my children and my grandchildren. Some thought taking a 14-year-old grandchild did not make sense, but I took them one at a time. I got three more to go. And folks, it's important. It's a danger of denying history because if we can deny it and hide it, then we can repeat it. Yeah, we, we really have to look at, um, again, what got us here. And, and human nature is cyclical. You know, this is not the first time we've seen this type of rise of uh, racism and, and authoritarianism and, and, and then straight up uh, dictatorships. You know, we've seen this hard right rise time and time again. And if we don't look back at history with clear eyes and, and speak about um, what really happened and teach our children what really happened, then we're always going to be doomed to repeat it. Actually, the day before I had my January 6th testimony, um, I, uh, my attorney who had taken me on pro bono with Aiken and Gump was uh, just a, a fantastic human being. And he used to be on the board of, of directors for the um, National Holocaust Museum, and I had never been. So um, I was able to walk around in the Holocaust Museum the day before my testimony, and it was just so striking. I went with my Jewish cousin, um, <clears throat> and for me, it was another eye awakening a moment for me because a lot of the, 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 the facial expressions you see in some of those exhibits of the the SS and the, the brown shirts as, you know, kind of before things got to the level they did. But in the, the ramp up to it, you know, there's a lot of, of just smirking and smiles and dehumanizing facial expressions when they're dealing with the Jewish people. And I, what was shocking to me was thinking to myself, I've seen these these same faces before, but within the militia communities, you know, and and you know when they're have talking in dehumanizing terms, and um, it just it 
it, it was just a shock to me. So I think it was, uh, you know, the universe's way of just putting in my mind that we do need to, you know, if I have an opportunity to speak to, you know, the the country and the leadership of the country in a way that might have an impact, I need to, to do it because, you know, the, we don't want to see a, a repeat of the Holocaust. We don't want to see genocide happening. We have, you know, and I think it's important that we, we really look at history. What a juxtaposition for you. I want to I want to share with our viewers a clip of your January sixth um, testimony. But let's let's take a quick break and um, and then we'll we'll share that with our viewers. We all hate wasting food. Now nothing is ever wasted thanks to Lomi. I have a Lomi and it's changed the way I think about my food waste. Lomi transforms my trash into treasure at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps to plant food in four hours. You'll have no food rotting in the garbage and smelling up your kitchen. No more leaky bags, and you can just take out the trash on garbage day. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich loamy earth that I can feed to my plants instead of sending it to the landfill. It helps the environment and makes my life easier. All your food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers you forgot in the back of the fridge can go back into your garden, helping you grow more nutritious food at home. And now, Lomi's new app lets you track your environmental impact, earning points for every cycle, and then you can redeem those for freebies from Lomi and other great brands. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount I send to landfill, I'm helping to do my part for the planet. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash lights and use the promo code lights to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash lights and use the promo code lights at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. So um, let's let's you know, take us back a year ago and and play that one of those very powerful moments that the world got to see when you testified for the January 6th committee. I think we've gotten exceedingly lucky that more bloodshed did not happen because the potential has been there from the start. And we got very lucky that the loss of life was, and as tragic as it is, that we saw on January 6th, the potential was so much more. Again, all we have to look at is the iconic images of that day with the gallows set up for Mike Pence, for the vice president of the United States. You know, and, and I do fear for this next election cycle because who knows what that might bring. If, if a president that's willing to try to instill and, and, and encourage to whip up a civil war amongst his followers using lies and deceit and snake oil. And regardless of the, the human impact, what else is he going to do if he gets elected again? All bets are off at that point. Um, and that's a scary notion. I have three daughters. I have a granddaughter. And I fear for the world that they will inherit if we do not start holding the, these, these people to account. Thank you for your testimony, Mr. Van Tatenhoff. So we've started on that, we've started on that journey of holding Donald Trump accountable, thank God. And you know, an, another thing I was reminded of as I was reading your book um, was this suggestion. And I'm I'm dubious of of how legitimate these polls are, but I do think there is a degree of truth in this that the that the um indictments of Donald Trump have increased support for him because people of people's distrust of the government. This is like basically the theme of your book, Jason. Um, and I just, I, I so vitally want these people to understand that when Donald Trump is being prosecuted for his crimes, they are not being prosecuted. This is not an attack on them. It's an attack on him for what he's done using them. Yeah, you know, and I think part of it is we live in these cultural mythologies, right? Um, people don't really, I know for me, and this is changing now because of the the talks I do and the consulting I work I do, 
um, <clears throat> you know, with with legislatures and, and people in the judicial and whatnot. Um, you know, I didn't know any better. I had never known someone who was a federal judge or an attorney or whatnot. So, you know, in, in the absence of that human connection, you know, I didn't even know really many people that were, you know, law enforcement, um, a few, but, you know, we, we, we create these mythologies based on what we're consuming in the media, whether that's movies or TV shows or books or podcasts. So, you know, it, it's, I think part of it is that we don't have a point of, of reference, um, a lot of these people, and, and that comes down to education. Um, you know, we, we see this, these images of whether it's an Ammon Bundy or you know, a lot of people within the Patriot community will, will carry around a pocket constitution. Um, and, and, you know, they don't really quote from it much, but they talk about it a lot yes. while they're, they're touching it to their heart. Um, you know, it's like I, read the transcript, remember from right. one, read so, the transcript, but don't really read it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I had to, to, to become friends with someone like Mary McCord, who was a previous, uh, acting attorney general for national security. Um, you know, who I think is, she's heading up Georgetown laws Institute for constitutional advocacy and protection. She's got the prosecuting Trump podcast. Um, you know, she is one of the leading scholars on the Constitution these days, specifically with Second Amendment issues. Um, and just being around people who have really studied and really yeah. know the history and, and the legal machinations of how it actually works. You know, I think that educational process is important, you know, because all of this, and I say it all the time, all of this starts and ends with storytelling. Um, you know, the truth should matter, um, but it doesn't. What matters is the storytelling, um, and unfortunately, yeah, yeah. storytelling is is not a quick fix. It's something that takes you know five, ten, fifteen, thirty years to have a cultural impact. Um, but you know, we we need to to make the truth of things important again, um, and I think that's going to start and end with storytelling. I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that the truth tellers and the pro democracy movement has to vigorously improve their their storytelling skills. I, I I talk about it as narrative. I think it's all we are always dealing with a battle of narratives. Right. Um, I I've certainly experienced it, you know, in my legal fights in this in this defeat of these Trump NDAs. You know, they tried to gaslight the courts so many times on what was really going on here. They tried to play the victim. <laughs> you know when. I was coming out as a woman who literally nobody knew who was just trying to assert my rights and and warn the country about this man that I once worked for. They acted like I was the biggest boogeyman in the world, you know, hurting this poor Donald Trump and his campaign. Um, you know, while they were literally making making me an example of of um, you know his very scary march towards authoritarianism, what it's like to be a a dissident. I mean, a, a version. I've described this before. I felt like a version of a dissident in a third world country, and yet they continuously played the victim through through their their narrative. Um, right, and they're not even yeah, they're not even doing that great of a job of, of creating these narratives. They're just doing it, and they're doing it in mass you and know, repetitively, turning it out. Yes, you know, I, I think we have much more creative people, you know, on the side of democracy. So every time I'm talking, I, I connect in with a lot of people in Hollywood these days and script consulting and such. And and every time I talk to a creative, and I, if there's creatives listening here to this show, I, I take it as kind of a personal charge to say, look, it's up to us. We've got to do a better job of storytelling for the truth and for for human dignity and just the world we want our children to inherit, we need to up our game when it comes to our creative process and our storytelling and our narratives, um, because they're not even doing that great of a job, you know, but they're doing it and they're doing it a lot. So um, I, I, I just like to put that out there that if you are creative listening to this show, please think about it and, and think about how you can use the power of storytelling and your voice and your platform to, to further you know, a, a better world for all of our children. Amen to that. Have you, uh, speaking of uh, creativity and to in inject some levity into this conversation, have you seen White Lotus? I have not, no. Not, okay. Well, no. I hadn't seen it for a long time, but then I, I watched the whole two seasons. For any White Lotus viewers out there, 
I am forever, um, <laughs> my, my concept of BLM is forever changed by having <laughs> watched White Lotus. There's this episode where the brilliant Jennifer Coolidge uh, plays a character named Tanya who meets a man who tells her <laughs> that he works for BLM. <laughs> And she thinks it's uh, Black Lives Matter. And then anyway, fast forward, she says, how did you get involved with BLM? He's like, BLM? It's Bureau of Land Management, <laughs> which surfaces many times in your book uh, over the, the Clive and Bundy Ranch um, episode. And I just yeah. I thought that was funny. It made me think of BLM all over again. Yeah, there's, there's um, definitely you have to, to watch the messaging, um, you know, with these acronyms and be very specific. <laughs> in my realm of things, BLM, for the most part, not that I, I have covered Black Lives Matter protests and and rallies and such in Denver and, and then up here in the small mountain resort town that I live in. Um, but yeah, completely different beast with the Bureau of Land Management and, uh, <laughs> and issues. Yeah, well, actually, you know what? I had not intended to do this, but on the subject of Black Lives Matter, um, especially it's so, so great to have you here having being a, a resident of Colorado. We had some very significant news come out of Colorado um, in the trial of the officers convicted um, being charged with the death of Elijah McLean. This is a story that has always been so close to my heart. Um, Elijah McLean, this beautiful, caring, loving young man who did absolutely nothing wrong and was stopped one night, uh, put in a chokehold, injected with ketamine and died. Um, there has been partial justice, partial justice for him with one of the officers being convicted. Another one was acquitted. Um, but it just kind of reminds me, Jason, and you even talked about this in your book about, you know, how we need to approach law enforcement with more humanity and how law enforcement officers are trained. It reminds me of this, this quagmire that we find ourselves in in government with these obscene shit show of the Republicans in the House. And they can't even, I mean, we're just talking about basic government functions that we need to accomplish. Think about the broader picture of all the things that have gotten pushed to the wayside, like voting rights, like police reform, like gun reform. Um, it's just, we have so many needs. We do. Um, but, you know, again, in Colorado, we are seeing progress. It's slow progress. It's, it's one step at a time and often two steps back before we get another step forward in. Um, but you have to start somewhere. And, and again, with Colorado, you know, Colorado at one point was labeled as a hate state because of, you know, legislation that was passed as dealing with gay marriage. I actually interviewed uh, the governor Polis on growing up gay on the front range, you know, but <clears throat> part of that is we're going through our growing pains and that's true of our country on a national level too. You know, we're not perfect, but a lot of us are trying to go the right direction um and that's not an easy pretty process it's ugly and we have to grapple with it we have to wrestle with it and we're going to lose sometimes and we're going to gain ground sometimes but we've got to keep the fight going so you know it's just such a heartbreak now and and then we have the double-edged sword of of social media and the interconnectedness that we see today where that becomes a fertile um a fertile bed for propaganda conspiracy, but it's also yeah. a place where we can show the reality of, hey, this is what happened. This mm -hmm. is a kid that was doing nothing. You know, he's 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 on the spectrum. He's he plays a fiddle. I mean, this was just a kid. Like like my would hang out with my teenage daughters. I'm sure. Yeah. You yeah. know, he would literally play play his violin for for cats and dogs in the animal shelter, and yeah. you know, was an animal lover, which says everything to me about his character. I I just it's it's one of those unthinkable things. But it would have been swept under the rug if we you know if it weren't for all those cameras and people talking and yeah. you know. So again, it's an ugly process, but you know we we are seeing some some progress because 10 years ago, I think it, we never would have heard much about it. Yeah. But now we're, 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 we're seeing some justice happen. The wheels are at least starting to move. And, you know, I, I, you know, I also write in the book about, you know, returning to Colorado and returning to the place that I'd grown up, um, yeah. you know, having lived in, in a, a pretty different culture for, you know, eight, 10 years, I think it was eight years, um, you know, up in, in Northwest Montana, um, it was just a, a really big homecoming to me. And, and, you know, again, it just, 
I, I wanted to plug in and really see what I could do um, because this was going to be the, the the future home of my children. You know, it's where they were born and where we were turning back home. So, you know, I took that as a, all right, if I'm moving back here, I'm going to do what I can. Yeah. And you have, I mean, you're doing so much. You're, you're, you know, highlighting these really important cases. Like I mentioned, the disqualification case, you do so much important local reporting. Local journalism is so vital, so vital. I mean, I think of the case of Ahmaud Arbery, which would have never been a case that anybody knew about were it not for local journalists. And, and you're doing that work in your community and, and on top of you know, trying to warn the country of these broader threats. But um, speaking of speaking of more local threats, uh, you and I were discussing this before we came on air. There's this insane, insane uh, initiative um, now signed into law in North Carolina by Republicans in the legislature that has formed a new entity, um, formerly known as the Joint Legislative Committee on Government Operations, or GovOps for short. And what this, um, what's being called a secret police force uh, does is it grants the state the authority to investigate matters including what they say are, quote, possible instances of malfeasance, misfeasance, nonfeasance, mismanagement, waste, abuse, or illegal conduct. And it's it's stripping people. This, this law will purport to strip people of their constitutional rights. If somebody finds themselves under investigation by GovOps, which is chaired by the Republicans in the North Carolina legislature, they won't be allowed to publicly discuss any alleged constitutional violations or misconduct by, by the investigators. Um, all communications with committee personnel is will be treated as confidential. And they'd also be denied the right to seek legal counsel regarding their rights if GovOps were to search their property without a warrant, irrespective of whether it was in a public or private space. I mean, it is unbelievable what some Republicans in power in majorities across this country are trying to do. Yeah. And I mean, in a certain way, they're getting away with it, too. I think what we're seeing now is a, a fracturing of the, the united aspect of the United States. You know, we're seeing cultural divisions happen along state lines and along red and blue state lines where, you know, whether it's reproductive rights and, and um, you know, or teaching history as it happened in respect to slavery and, and uh, systematic uh, racism, you know, we, we, we've got to really <clears throat> look at this. And, and actually this is, I'm, I'm finishing up, I'm about 35, 40 chapters into a, a new speculative fiction novel that deals with justice. It's set 30 years in the future and the country is, has fractured into these red and blue alliances of states. Um, and I just don't know like what the answer is for it. Um, you know, because if you have a, a legislative body on a local level that, that wants to impose their will and they have the power to do it, you know, uh, unfortunately the federal government seems to, to be <laughs> just as divided and, and locked, um, locked up that I don't know what the answer is. It's a, it's a scary proposition and then something like that sounds like something out of, you know, a, a thriller novel about pre-World War II Germany or, you know, the, the, the rise of Russia. The Communist I know. Russia. It so. is like that. I mean, this is the same state where, you know, the Republicans just recently were trying to oust their, one of their, their state Supreme Court justices, a black woman for saying that racism exists in courtrooms. I mean, they, they, they are taking very extreme measures. I'm sure this, uh, you know, special police initiative, whatever the hell you want to call it, will be challenged in court. Um, but absolutely, people need to be awake to this. And, you know, like, I, like I've said with, I mean, I'm sure you would say this about your experience in the Oath Keepers. I say this about my experience on the Trump campaign. They, Trump supporters, MAGA supporters, you will be turned on. It's not your enemies or the others that this is going to fall down and infect the lives of at the end. It's going to affect your life. You're going to see these, these mechanisms that you supported rain down on you and affect your family, affect your freedom, um, your ability to operate as a free American citizen. And that's that's gonna be one hell of a wake up call for you when it does. And all you have to do is look at recent history to see that happening, you know, it's a honeymoon period. It's almost like an abusive relationship cycle where, yep. you know, one of the, the spouses is being abused, but you know, you have that honeymoon period um, where everything's great in the beginning, um, but as soon as it's, it's not going the way the, the person in charge wants it to go, 
well, then you're one of the bad guys. You're one of the enemies. You know, you're out that revolving door and you're demonized. Um, yep. And we've seen that time. Like, where have we not seen it? Exactly. Every exactly. single time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's true of, and, and you know, I think Stuart Rhodes and, and Donald Trump are wired very similarly. Um, in the state, we saw the similar things happening with, you know, whether it's state leadership or, you know, board of directors, you know, once that honeymoon period was over, that revolving door revolved very quickly, revolving them back out. So, you know, it's just look at the cycles, look at the the historic trends because they're all there and they all line up. And it in in the end, everyone gets a, that short end of the stick, other than Donald Trump. Absolutely, and and in worst cases, they get their death. The short end of the stick is their own death. I think of I think of the um, the other witness the day that you testified, Stephen Ayers, and he was a, of course a January sixth defendant. His co defendant Matthew Perna, after pleading guilty, committed suicide. Um, you know, add that to all the suicides of, of course, the officers that um, committed suicide tragically after January 6th. Um, but you have Donald Trump's own supporters either marching themselves to their death that day, Roseanne Boyland, Ashley Babbitt and others, or committing suicide in the aftermath because of a recognition of what they had been part of. It's a death yeah. cult. Yeah, it really is. And this is just the beginning. I mean, if it continues to go, I mean, this is this is a, a group that literally raised a gallows for their own vice president. Um, you know, it, if, if things had been just a little different on that day, if, if Stewart had led a charge from this from, you know, the lead from that tip of that spear or, you know, people had just been more organized, more willing to, to get in there quicker. Um, you know, I think we got lucky that leadership was poor that day and not leading from the front because I think we might be living in a different reality. Um, you know, but it's just it's crazy to think. Yeah. Another connection that I mentioned to you before, and I know these have these connections have been drawn, but I think it's important to highlight it because I don't think there is a real difference. Um, whether you're talking about domestic terrorism incited by the likes of Donald Trump and Stuart Rhodes, or you're talking about Islamic terrorists that is, um, you know, ravaging horrors in the Middle East right now. Um, it's all this kind of grievance motivated terror, grievance motivated. Um, they they exploit people's fears and grievances, and then they turn them into violence and atrocities. Yeah, it's part of the formula. Um, it, there really is truly a formula that they're using, and it works. I mean, as a species, we are hardwired for storytelling. We are hardwired for emotional connection and and so when that is taken and weaponized um, to fit a specific agenda, I mean, all you have to do is look at the speeches given before um, the Capitol was raided and, and in the weeks leading up to it, you know, you, it's, it's laid out pretty clear, those formulas. Um, and again, it's just, it, it's tapping into just our hardwiring as a species and and taking advantage of it, attacking it, and, and weaponizing it, um, and uh, we we've got to look at counteracting that. And you know, I I they had a thousand witnesses that they would call upon for the January six. You know, I I always told myself, oh, I'll never make it. I'm just some guy who's obviously made a lot of poor life decisions, and I have tattoos on my face, and I won't dress up. Um, so I never thought I'd actually make it. You know, into the actual hearings, televised hearings, but. Um, you know, the universe had a different plan, but I just decided, you know, if, if, if the universe is going to take someone like me and put me up there, I'm yeah. going to at least try to talk, speak the speak. truth of what happened. Um, because it didn't seem at the time, you know, people were sidestepping, oh, it was a peaceful protest or justified. It wasn't violent. It was Antifa. And that's all bullshit. That's all just crap. Um, and we all know it. So I was just going to use that to say, look, we, we, We've got to be very honest about where we are in our country right now because we are at a crossroads and the future our children will inherit depends on how we respond to um, what is happening in front of our eyes in high definition and um, you know whether or not we, we call it out for the truth it is or we go along with the, the messaging and propaganda. 
Well, I'll tell you, Jason, to me, the day that you testified was one of the most compelling, uh, compelling days of testimony. I, you know, even though we, we don't, you know, superficially, we don't look like we would have a lot in common. I really, I really felt like I could relate to you um, in a lot of ways. I, um, I told you this before I was on a panel on this network, Midas Touch, and the, the week, I think it was the week before I had broken down in tears over Shay and Ruby's testimony. And when I was talking about yours, I started to tear up again. I'm like, I'm not going to be the crying girl on Midas Touch. So I'm not, I'm not going to let the tears fall out. But it was, it was actually incredibly emotional for me. And I think that that testimony um, probably had a lot of impact and, and reached a lot of people who may have been in a similar position to you at some time. Well, I hope so. That's, that's all I can hope is that, you know, me telling my story and and just, you know, being open and honest and vulnerable about it and owning owning my own shit just will help someone who was in a similar trajectory maybe say, oh, wait a second, Amy, maybe I don't need to go down this road. Maybe I need to look at educating myself more about what's really going on in the peripheral here um, and and choose not to go down the radicalization path. Absolutely. Um, before we let you go, Jason, and before I make some really important announcements that I hope everybody sticks around for, I wanted to just kind of on this theme of um, common humanity um, bookend with the situation in Israel and Palestine and Gaza um, with some comments that Biden made that I was also very grateful for that really encompass, um, like I said, when I started the show, just the the humanitarian aspect that we're facing on all on all ends and our need to to stand um, for human rights. It's also priority for me to urgently address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. At my direction, our teams are working in the region, including communicating directly with the governments of Israel, Egypt, Jordan, and other Arab nations, and the United Nations to surge support and humanitarian consequences for Hamas attack to help Israel. You know, we, have to, we can't lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians had nothing to do with Hamas and Hamas's appalling attacks, and they're suffering as a result as well. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, it's just a, such a, an awful situation all around. Um, you know, we, we saw, we've heard just the nightmare stories of, of, elderly people and babies and children and just this unprovoked attack out of the blue. But yet they're, they're, you know, it, it's this terrorist group and it's this government. Again, I think we need to, to, to really just focus on human connection and empathy, you know, overreaction, I think is going to lead to further issues down the line. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of speechless with the whole thing because it's just, such a tragic loss of human life across both sides. And I just, I, I, I don't know what the answers are. I don't know if anyone knows what the answers are. I, I echo those sentiments and I would just pray and advocate for humanity and, um, and peace. And I just, my heart is with everybody suffering. And also of course in Ukraine and around the world suffering under oppression. Um, Jason Van Tatenhoff, thank you so much for joining me this hour. I definitely hope everybody will check out your Substack, Colorado Switchblade, um, and your podcast of the same name. And also definitely uh, check out your book, The Perils of Extremism. It's on sale um, right now, too, if you want it. So On sale now. On sale now. Go get yourselves a copy. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Jessica. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to, like I said, I have some special announcements. I also have a very special request for all of you. Um, as you know, this was a, a very special, beautiful week for me in court. Um, I have an announcement about how we're going to cover that in a minute. But um, this week actually started off on a little bit of an off note. Um, this show that I've, I've worked very hard to um, build and put so much love and effort into shining lights and, and defending our democracy came under attack, actually, by misinformation um, on a Reddit post. Um, apparently, one of the fans of the show was driving around with a sign for the show in, the in their car, 
and was filmed by somebody on Reddit to falsely identify that I was driving the car, um, driving a minivan 3,000 miles away from where I was. And uh, we got a lot of hate reviews from people who have never watched Lights On, maybe, you know, maybe from manga, I don't know, but a lot of hate reviews to our otherwise um, very well-rated show that, uh, that we're trying to build the audience for and share with more and more people. So if you would please, special request this week, please, um, if you haven't already, if you would go to wherever you get your audio podcasts and leave us a, an, a, a real review, I hope it's a five-star review, but leave us a real review um, to, to hopefully make this right and correct this misinformation and this kind of ignorance and hatred that targeted lights on this week. I would so love that and appreciate that. Um, also, as usual, if you want to support my efforts, aside from the NDA victory, the inception case that made this all possible, we still very much need your help. You can do that as always at thejessicadenson.com slash donate. Now, about that NDA victory. We are going to have a very, very special episode on Monday with three of my lawyers, John Langford, David Bowles, and Joe Slaughter. You're going to meet, get to meet this amazing team that just accomplished this amazing feat for democracy. We're going to have an entire show dedicated just to the NDA victory, um, and you will get to meet them. So definitely, definitely tune in. Also, we had a really important interview with Lawrence Tribe about how we can support Ukraine even as MAGA Republicans hold Ukraine limbo and um, funding in limbo. Check out that interview with Lawrence Tribe. Another um, really important interview with Gold Star Father Kaiser Khan coming out this weekend. Check that out too. Thank you as always for joining me. Thank you for joining me and Jason. And thank you so much. Um, the outpouring of love and support that I have seen this week um, with this victory has been really blown me away. And you guys uh, really warm my heart. Thank you so much. Let your light shine.